Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Great. Turn with me to Joshua, not Judges. We are going to get to Judges. But let's go to Joshua first, chapter 24. I want to give you a little background here for a second. Uh, while, I, while you're turning there, I do want to calm your anxious hearts and fears. Brad is not gone. He is at Midtree this morning witnessing the baptism of his oldest son, Joseph. He will be back. He is back from Uganda. It was a great trip, and he'll be back here next Sunday. So a lot of great things happening, but I know some of you get a little, a little panicky when he's not around, and frankly, it's, um, it's a bit offensive. All right, so... Joshua chapter 24, uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that um, the promised land, entering the promised land, it's a big deal. All right, it's the, it takes up the focus of virtually the first six books of the Bible, what it looks like to, 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 to enter the promised land, what life, like there, what life should be like there. And, uh, and Joshua chapter 24 concludes... Um, as they have entered into the promised land, they've received their inheritance. I'll pick up in verse 28. So Joshua sent the people away. He's just given this big speech. Every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. They buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sirah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Uh, that, that, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty happy ending, right? It seems like things are in a good place. Everyone finally gets to inherit their, their reward. They settle in. Joshua passes on, but this generation that, that outlives Joshua, they continue to live in faithfulness to the Lord, reminded of, of all that he's done to bring them there. Um, it seems like a, a, a real happily ever after. But as we'll see in the book of Judges, which is our text this morning, uh, things take a very quick, quick turn. And I want us to focus on what happens and why it happens and how we as God's people today can fight against um, the tendencies that we see in God's people then. So let me pray for us, uh, and, and we'll, get, we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are grateful to sit underneath it, to be, uh, to, to be captivated by it. Lord, we ask that you would incline our ears and our hearts to receive all that you have for us in your scripture. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we find it on every page, and we thank you that you have set forth in, in history to redeem a people for yourself, including us. So, Lord, feed your sheep this morning. Help me as I purvey your word to your people. Pray that, uh, that we would see much fruit from, from our time in the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Judges... Uh, which I'm really excited. We've never preached a sermon on Judges. This has never happened. I don't know why that is. Crosswind's been around for a long time, but we've never, we've never touched Judges. Today it happens. It happens today. Our long national nightmare is over. Judges is the, the follow-up, the sequel, 
uh, but it's a pretty dark and gritty one to Joshua. And, uh, and so Judges then, um, it, it, it catalogs where it shows us uh, the, the aftermath, the, what all comes after they've inherited the promised land. And as you might imagine, it's not all that pretty. Judges has two introductions. The first introduction in chapter 1 verses, uh, through a little bit of chapter 2 focuses mainly on uh, the geopolitical state of, of uh, the status of the nation of Israel, God's people. Looks at all the enemies that they have destroyed, all the enemies that they have allowed to remain in the promised land. Uh, but then there's a second introduction, and this one looks more at the spiritual status of God's people. What's going on in their hearts, in their minds, where they're at in relation to the Lord, not just to the world around them. And so this one is focused mainly on Israel's unfaithfulness. Uh, what's, what's so interesting about it, though, is that it seems to pick up almost verbatim from what we just read in Joshua. Let me read this for you in Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Now that should sound very familiar. I mean, it's almost lifted directly from Joshua. And so the impression that you're left with, if that's all you have, is that things are just continuing on. Uh, that things will only continue down the trajectory that you might have anticipated uh, the people of Israel would experience and face. But that's, that's, not what, that's not what happens. And the next bit of verse 10 holds the key to the rest of the book of Judges. If you understand this verse, then the rest of Judges should come as absolutely no surprise. right? And it, and it says this, And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord and who did not know the work that he had done for Israel. That's an unbelievable statement. I mean, it should strike you as incredible to find this buried right in the, the introduction of Judges after six whole books of nothing but the records of what the Lord has done for Israel, of who he is. Now, are the people in the days of the Judges flipping through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus? No, pro probably not, right? Uh, it's, it's not quite that the same as what we might have today. But they know about all of these events, right? That's how those books got written. That's how these things come into existence, that people know this. This is a, an integral, important part of their national identity as God's people. So let's, let's review redemptive history then for just a minute here. Let's review it. So God creates all things. He, he creates uh, all, all of the things that we see, the whole world, the universe, everything that fills it, the creatures, the, the plants, the air we breathe, the water that the fish swim in, all of it. He creates it all in six days, including 
the first people. He creates Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And he gives to Adam and Eve the responsibility of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, uh, 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 stewarding it, shepherding it, caring and tending for it. Notably, the, the Garden of Eden. And, and then he makes this covenant with them where he, he sets before them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, right? And, and God's people, Adam and Eve, are, are faced with, uh, a, I guess, a dilemma. It shouldn't have been one, but, but they're, they're tested. And they violate this covenant that the Lord has made with them. Right, they, they take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they fall prey to the temptation and the snares of the serpent. And what happens is they are banished from the garden. But, but the Lord makes a promise to them in the midst of all of this. And he tells them in chapter 3 of Genesis that there will be a seed, an offspring of this woman Eve, who will come and crush the serpent in due time. The Lord, he goes ahead and he gives them a, a heads up about how he is going to rescue and redeem this people for himself. And this is a pattern we see play out again and again and again throughout the Bible and especially the Old Testament. Then you fast forward to Noah. There's nothing special about Noah, by the way. He, he's just kind of, he's just your average guy. Uh, but the Lord, the Lord chooses him. He calls him out. And he gives to Noah the responsibility of, of, of building this ark that he and his family might be saved. And so in Noah, we have this reiteration of Adam. Right? He's, 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 he's the new father of all, of all that, that come after him. Right? And the rest of creation, all the people that were living at that time besides Noah and his family are all destroyed in the flood. But Noah and his family, they're rescued, they're saved through the waters by this ark that the Lord has commissioned to be made. But it's not too long after that salvation of the Lord that Noah uh, really messes the whole thing up. Next thing you know, he is drunk and naked in his living room. And his sons witness this. And that's the start of the brand new civilization that is in place. And so things spiral out of control again. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And then finally, one day, the Lord chooses another man. And again, not because he's particularly great or awesome. This guy, in fact, is a card-carrying pagan. And he's wandering the, the desert as a nomad with his family, his flocks, his servants, all the people that tend to him. He's a wealthy man. But the Lord calls Abram, out of all the peoples of the earth, and the Lord then makes a covenant, a, a salvation, a redemptive moment takes place in Abram's life where the Lord promises to him that he will have a family so great that the stars will be uh, too few for them, right? There, there will be more people than grains of sand. Abram can't believe this. He is as good as dead. His wife is uh, as good as dead. There is no way that they are going to be having children. And the best he can figure is that one of his servants is just going to take over everything that's his. That's, that's the best he can, he can manage. He tries to work his way around this promise of the Lord in a couple of uh, seedy ways. But in the end, the Lord actually follows through and fulfills this promise that he had made to Abram. And he gives him a son, Isaac. 
And it's through Isaac that this promise continues on to God's people. Isaac is the son of, of promise. He's a son of grace. He's a son of God's mercy. And a reminder, a reflection, the expression of who God is and his mercy towards a people who are undeserving. That people of Abram's, by the way, they do grow. They, they become an incredible uh, multitude of people. And this nation ends up moving because of a, uh, a drought, a, 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 I guess, what, what's the word for it? There's no food. One of those things. You all saying it. Anyway, a famine. So, so they, they go to, to Egypt to find, to find rescue, to find food. And that's where they end up staying. And they, they, become, they become incredibly numerous to the point that the Egyptians are actually threatened by this invasion of outsiders into their, into their land. They don't remember their forefathers, the patriarchs, Joseph. None of these names mean anything to them anymore. But the Lord has made this promise to his people to rescue and redeem them. And so we expect that that is what will happen. And so in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, um, listen, listen to what, what happens here. Uh, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. I love verse 25. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew he saw the, the, the suffering that they faced. Uh, he, he saw the ways in which uh, the promises that he had made to the patriarchs, to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, had, had not quite come to pass in the way that God's people needed them to. And the Lord knew. He was aware. He, he had not forgotten them. So the Lord sends Moses, and, and Moses rescues this people of Israel. He brings them out of, of Egypt, and he takes them to the promised land. Now, there's a lot that goes on in between those moments. Uh, the, there is wandering in the wilderness. There, there's incredible signs and wonders that the Lord does for them. He parts the sea. He provides for them food from the sky, water from rocks, salvation, after salvation. And then you get to Judges chapter 2. All of this has come to pass. And we see in verse 10, another generation after them did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. It is a tragedy It is scandalous. It is almost unbelievable that that sentence could be be written. I mean, let's think for a second, you know, maybe about about your own life. I mean, how often do we forget the Lord's faithfulness to us? How quickly do we, you know, move on? from the Lord's salvation, how easily do we just assume and take for granted the rights and privileges that he has given us as his children, if indeed we are his children by faith in Christ. That, 
This is incredible, but in some ways, I think we can probably relate to it a little bit. You know, how, how easily terrified we are of the future, failing to remember how the Lord has been with us in the past. The result of this, the result of this forgetfulness, this ignorance, is, is everything that follows in Judges. It is a depressing spiral of chaos and idolatry and destruction all the way to the last verse of this book. Let me read for you verses 11 through 15. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers, who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whatever or whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. See, we might think that forgetting what God had done would be relatively harmless or maybe unnoticeable in the everyday life of God's people, but in a generation, it absolutely destroyed Israel from the inside out. So they did what was evil. They, they served the Baals, they abandoned the Lord, and then at the same time, the Lord's anger kindled. The Lord gave them over to their enemies and opposed them himself. The Israelites cherished neither their salvation nor its author, and ultimately they became no different than the Canaanites that the Lord had already designated for destruction. So by failing to orient their hearts towards salvation, they effectively undermined it. Well, that's cheerful and, and, and exciting, and that's where I'll leave you. Uh, how, do we, how do we read this? How do we read Judges? Where's the gospel here? Um, uh, just a, a helpful tip here. It's best to read Judges with an eye for what God's people need, not as much what they have. And so that's how we'll proceed. I have two points this morning, two points. Honestly, it's really the same point, but pe people panic and they freak out when there's just like one point. They don't know what to do with that. And so I'm giving you two points. They will sound eerily similar. Point number one, God's people will flourish only when they know the Lord and his work for them. So if the path for the Israelites was paved with destruction, the path of, of, of uh, destruction was paved rather with ignorance, the path to, to wholeness and restoration surely is paved with knowledge, knowledge of the Lord and what he's done. For Israel... The problem was not a matter, though, of merely remembering facts about him, right? I mean, it's clear that they know these stories. They, they, they know of the Lord in some form or fashion because that's how we get Judges, right? Judges is written after this generation. So somewhere along the way, somebody knew all this and they wrote it down, right? So it's not just a matter of that oh, they, they, they literally they didn't know the stories. They never heard 
Maybe it wasn't as prominent, maybe it wasn't as uh, focal of a point of their lives, but it's not that they just didn't remember facts. Rather, the origin of their salvation was simply assumed, was taken for granted, and finally, ultimately, it was set aside in favor of bigger and better things, in favor of things that are maybe more important or just as important, but we got to divide our time evenly here. Something happened. We don't know what. We can't really blame the previous generation. That's not really where the blame falls. It's just something has taken place where the people of God, they, they, they began to assume rather than to cherish and esteem the Lord and his work for them. Um, and so all the, the mighty things that the Lord had done, they were witnessed by these past generations and they were even enshrined in their history over time to, to form a, a, a national identity as God's people. And I want you to know it's, it's possible to commemorate all these events, all, all these redemptive acts of, of the Lord in their history. It's possible that they even commemorated these things via the sacrificial system, the, the rites of holiness and devotion that God's people were called to observe. Generations, we know from Scripture, were commanded to commend God's works and ways to the next generation. This is really the bulk of Deuteronomy, but if you look at like Deuteronomy 11, for example, you'll see this command that they commend his works to the next generation, that they, they hold his law and his works right between their eyes, that they, they live with it right, right there. But here's the thing, and this is the problem. God's people are not meant to be merely historians or even like reenactors, God's people are meant to experientially know, embrace, and build their lives on the Lord. It's not just knowing things about the Lord that was missing. They probably knew a lot of things. The, the problem is that they, they themselves did not know the Lord. And this is, um, you know, this, this has always been a distinguishing mark of God's people, that they would know the Lord. Our identity as God's people is found in knowing a person. Knowing a, a person, a capital P person, and by extension, all that that person has done, right? Because in some way or other, what the Lord has done is an expression of who he is. Right? We see the Lord is merciful, kind, just, gracious, holy, great, mighty. We see these things in, in the way that he reveals himself to us, in the, in the ways that he acts on our behalf or, or in the world, in our, in our sight. God's people need to know him. Jeremiah, 20, or Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, verse 23 and 24, uh, it says this, the, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness 
in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then if you flip over to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, the Lord lays out this covenant that he will establish someday in the future. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Get this, verse 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive them their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. You see, again and again, part of knowing the Lord is seeing him at work. It is, it is being a witness to and experiencing his righteousness, his holiness, and his grace for his people at work in their midst. We must know the Lord in that way. See, Moses wasn't saved because he had just seen the Red Sea part, Right? Uh, Joshua didn't find salvation simply because he was a a witness to the the crumbling walls of Jericho. That's, That's not where their salvation was. Rather, the faithful men and women of the Old Testament were saved because they hoped in the Lord and in his salvation, confident that the Lord in his very person was both mighty to save and mercifully faithful to a rebellious people. That's who the Lord is. And Israel, somewhere along the way, they lost sight of that. Maybe they knew facts about it. Maybe they understand the gist of the timeline of their history, but they had lost along the way this deep, intimate knowledge of who the Lord is and what he has done. And so we must turn to the Lord. We must see him for who he is. We we need to know him. And this reaches its height ultimately at the cross, right? Where the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he gave his life to redeem a sinful people and rescue them from eternal destruction, what the Lord had done in Israel's history in their past was, was remarkable. It's unbelievable. It really is crazy that the Israelites had somehow uh, lost sight of how important these things were. But none of these things actually compares to the, the gospel. No, none of these things compares to the gospel. And that's my second point. To live faithfully as God's people, we must know the person and work of Christ. See, every act in the Old Testament, uh, every act of the Lord in the Old Testament is anticipating one great final ultimate fulfillment, which is salvation in Christ. It's all looking ahead to what Jesus will accomplish at the cross and in his resurrection. But praise God that the culmination of all of these things, right, all these acts of salvation through the ages, that that the gospel as the culmination of that, of God's redemptive work, is bigger, it is better, it is truer, and it is lasting. So the Israelites, you you may not really understand how they forgot, but at the same time, the Red Sea eventually closed back in. 
One generation that had witnessed the Exodus died off. The next generation, it, 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 meant, it meant nothing to them in terms of personal experience. They hadn't known, they hadn't experienced it. But, but the gospel is something far different. It is far greater than any of these historic, incredible events that have taken place in God's redemptive plan. The gospel and the gospel, we can actually know God in Christ. Let me, let me turn you uh, to J- uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 5. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples just before his crucifixion. And, and when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, in the gospel, we see, Je- we, we see Jesus, and by doing that, we, we know the Lord. And Jesus is no mere prophet. He, he's not just some guy who reminds us about God. No, by looking at Jesus, by, by seeing him, we see his father. We know God if we know Jesus. And that's only possible because of the gospel. You understand? So then the gospel is not only how we can know God, but it's also how we can experience what God has done in Christ. So Matthew chapter 13 says this in verse 16, but blessed are your eyes for they see, this is Jesus, and and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and they did not see it, and they longed to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In the gospel, we find something that no generation of God's people had ever experienced up to that point. And, And in the gospel, we experience, we know, we see who the Lord is and what he has done in Christ. In the gospel, we don't have just a mere tradition, an oral history of facts, we have the very revelation and expression of who God is and what he has done for his people. It's our privilege then as God's people to commend Christ and his work to one another. That's our privilege. If you know the Lord, if if you know the gospel, if you believe it, then it is a gift from the Lord to you that, that you might participate in his work of, of, of sustaining and bringing about the, the redemption of and sanctification of his people. That's his gift. This isn't, I'm not primarily talking about uh, evangelism, right, or, or missions. I mean, those things would naturally follow, right? If you, if you know the Lord and you know what he has done in Christ to save sinners, uh, then, then naturally what comes from that is, that is that you want to tell other people about it. Um, and I'm not just saying that, that we should do a better job of prioritizing the gospel, you know, making it maybe more prominent in our lives, as if the gospel is like a, a spoke on the wheel instead of the, the actual hub itself, right? The, the gospel is what connects and brings order to everything in our lives. It's not just a piece of the puzzle, 
I'm not saying those things. Rather, the question that I guess you need to ask yourself is do you have a heart that delights in the God of our salvation who is Christ Jesus? Do you, do you delight in him? Is the gospel like the air you breathe? If you were a fish, would it be like the water that you swim in? I was at a doctor's office not too long ago. And I had the incredible misfortune and traumatic experience of witnessing a child who really should have known better uh, interacting with and communicating with fish in like a fish tank. And this was one of those big fish tanks, you know, like a doctor's office fish tank where it's like plate glass and, you, you know, it's like you look at it and the fish is probably this big, but because of the magnification effect, it's like a shark, you know, and it's just, it's this massive thing in the middle of the room. It draws everyone's attention. And this child who, again, can I say, was way too old to be doing this, walked up to it and with all of her might, with all the love that she could conjure up, started slamming her hand against the side of the fish tank. Now, some of you people maybe don't know how horrible of a thing that is. Some of you are like cringing. You're panicking right now. You're thinking of all the injustice in the world going on, and this is right at the top of the list because slamming your hand against a fish tank is not how we treat fish, right? That's not what you do. And you could see the terror in the fish's eyes, and you could, you could see it in his face because he would, the shock waves of this like, 12-year-old girl's hands hitting the glass sent him in like a tsunami of terror and fear to the back of the, to the, back of the tank. I mean, it was like in a moment, he would just like twitch, you know? And, and, he, and he, I'm sure, I am certain that he is not alive right now. But, but that, was, that was his life. I, I, I witnessed the final cataclysmic, chaotic moments of a poor fish's life. I saw it, and I didn't intervene because I had other things to do. But anyway... You know, when you, when you, when you hit it, it, it is kind of counterintuitive that hitting the walls of a, of a fish tank would be this destructive and tra- you know, traumatizing because if somebody hits the wall of your house, you know, I mean, you don't really feel it, you don't really know it. But for a fish, it's a big deal because the water that he swims in carries these shockwaves all the way across, right? I mean, the water affects everything in his life. As the water goes, so goes he or she. Uh, and, and so, and so the, the water, I mean, hitting the side, it's a, it's a big deal because this is the water that the fish swims in. He can't, he can't help but, but be impacted by it in every way of his, every aspect of his life. Is the gospel like that for you? Not a traumatizing experience. Hopefully you don't know many 12-year-old girls who would do that. But is the, gospel, is the gospel the water that you swim in so that everything is affected and impacted by it in your life? Is that how you see the gospel, or is it just kind of a, a part of, of your existence? Um, here's, here's the deal. The people of God cannot exist where the person and work of Christ has grown stale. They just can't, right? And I would tell you, it's not a matter of watching the people of God die out. It's rather a, a matter of saying, these aren't the people of God if the, if the gospel, if the person and work of Christ is not prominent, it's just not, that's not, that, that is not the definition of the people of God. Is the gospel prominent in your life? This has some pretty broad application, as you might imagine. Um, you know, what, what is the purpose of the pastor, the elder, for, for, for his flock, for the church? What's my purpose? What's Brad's purpose? The, the other elders of Crosspoint, what, what's our responsibility to you, the, the, the people of, of Crosspoint? You know, it's, it's often kind of taken uh, 
for granted, oh yeah, no, you preach me the gospel, but I, I need you to help me, you know, like feel, feel better about myself, or, or can, you, can you help me navigate the, the ins and outs of my life uh, better and make, make sure my, my Tuesday is more successful or happier or, or what have you. Um, but you see how if we start going down that road, then, then we at some point forfeit the gospel. We take it for granted, we assume it, and, and, then, and then what happens is that the people of God fall apart. Right, no, no, my job, my role, Brad, the, the other elders of this church, our, our purpose is that we might make Christ known in your life. You know, I can't tell you the number of times that I've been sitting down with somebody, uh, counseling about any, any number of things, right? And, and it's like without fail, every time, you, you know, you, you're talking and you're gauging where someone's at and what's going on in their life and how they feel about it and what their fears are and their expectations and, and all of it. And in the end, it's like, like clockwork. You, you find out, you know what, we would all benefit here from a better understanding of the gospel. No, it's not that you know, simple, oh, let me preach to you the gospel. See, your marriage is better. That's not what I mean. But rather, the, the gospel, it, it should inform everything that we do. It should inform how we feel, how we react, how we respond. And, and so the gospel then, it, like, man, our purpose is to make Christ known to you. If there comes a day or a time when you are around us and, and our goal is not to make Christ known to you, then you need to find another church. You need to find another pastor because, because we will have failed you, right? Um. Yeah, I, I, I heard a, a, a guy, brother, I think he was a brother, uh, at some point in the last month or two, um, there was a conversation about uh, the importance of preaching the gospel. Preach the gospel, preach the gospel. And, and, and finding the gospel in, in scripture and pointing people to who Jesus is and what he's done everywhere. Whether you're in Genesis or Revelation, whatever, like let's, let's always drive people to the cross. Let's, let's, let's make that our aim. And this guy, I think I know what he meant, but he raised his hand and he, he just kind of said sort of, I guess innocently, uh, but it was pretty revealing. He said, well, won't that get boring after a while? And I thought, man, like it might, and that's a, that's a big problem if so. Right? Because we need the gospel. The, the gospel shouldn't become stale to us. We need to feed on it. We need to feast on it. This is true if you're an unbeliever. It's true if you're a believer. You need to hear the gospel again and again. You need to meditate on it. It needs to be the focal point of your life. This is true for husbands and wives. You know, Ephesians chapter 5 talks about this very explicitly. I mean, this is, Paul says, I'm saying that uh, the marriage, uh, the relationship between a husband and a wife, this is all about Christ and his church. That's what he says. It's not just a metaphor. I mean, it, it is truly about the gospel. Maybe you're wondering, oh, man, how can I, how can I fix uh, my spouse? How can I, you know, uh, there's a lot of issues here that we need to, we need to work out. Um, but man, if, if your hope is not in the gospel, and what the gospel might accomplish in your husband or wife's life, and how you yourself need the gospel and all your dealings and interactions with your husband or wife, then, then you will ultimately be missing the point. We, we need the gospel there. Parents and children, this is, I think, a pretty obvious um, application, just thinking about generations. You know, it, it isn't only this, but, um, but I, let me just encourage you if you, have, if you have children, whether they're adults or small, small people, um, do they know what the Lord has done in your life? Do they know? Not generally, what's the gospel? Maybe they know that. Maybe they've heard those facts. I mean, what has the Lord done in your life? Do your kids know that? 
They should. Tell them how the Lord has saved you. Tell them what a, what a wretch you were, but, but how the Lord stepped in and intervened and brought you back from death. Tell them. Why, why wouldn't you? Maybe there are details you want to kind of keep, keep a little safe, keep close to the vest for a time. That's fine. But, but you need to, you, your children should not wonder uh, what, what the Lord has done in your life. Um, and another thing, too, don't, don't leave the discipleship of your children to other people, whether they be pastors, teachers, or football coaches. Don't, don't leave the discipleship of your kids to someone else, right? The, the, the purpose of this is that as we meditate on and, and embrace and know the Lord and what he's done in Christ, it, it becomes our privilege, becomes our responsibility to pass this along and to make it the focal point of our homes. And finally, as, as church members, what's our responsibility to one another in light of this? I mean, this should inform the very essence of, of life together as a church. It should inform our understanding of what discipleship is. How often do, do you maybe think, I need to be discipled by somebody, or conversely, maybe somebody approaches you wanting discipleship. Will you disciple me, but you feel like for whatever reason that you're not equipped or capable of, of doing that? Well, if you're not a believer, yeah, no, you're definitely not. But if, if you are a Christian, if you know the Lord and the work that he has done for his people, and brothers, sisters, I got to tell you, you have everything that you need to effectively disciple one another. And that's not just a responsibility for like the, the elite Christian, for somebody who's really got it figured out for the theologians among us. It's, it's the responsibility of all God's people. The downfall of Israel came about because maybe no one really felt any sort of burden in that way. Uh, they know the facts, you know, they'll figure it out. No, you don't leave people to chance like that. Instead, you as a brother or sister in the Lord, you find those people in your sphere that need to understand, that need to hear the gospel more, and that need the gospel to be made known in their life. I don't care what the situation is. I don't care how far along in, the, in their knowledge of the Lord they are. We need each other so that we could revel together in the gospel more and more. That, that is how the church is built and grows. We can't divorce the gospel from, from life. Rather, we see it everywhere and we, we make it known. And all this is possible. All of this is possible because the gospel is just something else. It is something different. It is something newer and greater than, than all these great and incredible mighty things that the Lord had done in the past. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 It, um, it, it's, it just explains so much. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can't say that about the Red Sea. Uh, you can't say that about the ark. The ark is no more. The ark has passed on, right? And all the people that were saved by the ark are dead. Oh, they're alive in the Lord, but they're dead. The gospel is the power of God for those who believe it. 
And so when you hear the God, I mean, there's all kinds of news in this world that leaves people unchanged uh, who, who didn't experience it, who didn't live it. You know, I was thinking the other day, I mean, there have been 18 years of people being born who did not live, they were not breathing air uh, when 9-11 happened. Have you thought about that? I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like, I can remember it. I remember where I was. I remember the conversations I had. I remember so many details of that. But there are people who it doesn't, it doesn't register with them, really. I mean, maybe they know facts about it. They know what happened. Maybe they've studied it. But it doesn't register with them. They don't, they don't know how that felt, right? Maybe on a, on a more positive note. Uh, well, for some of you, a positive note. For some of you, a pretty horrible note. Um, you know, I, I've been a Bulldogs fan as long as, I can, as long as I've been alive, right? Go dogs. But, but the, the thing is, I wasn't alive for the last national title, which I realize is a, is a burden for many of us. The Lord's Supper is coming in a minute. Um, I, I know about Herschel Walker, but I didn't experience it. I, 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 I didn't watch replays and highlights of him. I, I don't know. I mean, I know about him. I think he's great, but I, I really don't know. I, I, I didn't experience that. See, in these events, they don't have then any sort of power to really transform us. But the gospel is different because the gospel, every time, every time it is spoken and someone hears it and believes it, they are immediately transported to the moment when Jesus died for them. And by believing the gospel, then we bring it 2,000 years into the future. We bring it to right now because we experience it. We live it every single day. The gospel is, like, is unlike anything else. By hearing it, the Lord stirs people to faith and makes Christ's death and resurrection a reality for them 2,000 years after the fact. The gospel, it can't be thwarted by time or fading memory because in the gospel, we encounter the living God and knowing him are transformed day by day to be more like him. Let me just offer a, a final word here um, of, of maybe uh, some comfort and encouragement. I know some of you probably are thinking, man, I haven't, I haven't made the gospel as prominent in my life as as a, a believer should, should, you know, demonstrate. And uh, I, w- I want to remind you of a story. Um, you know, Israel and Judges 2 here, they, you know, they tacitly, they deny, they deny the God of their salvation. Uh, and the result is destruction. Uh, uh, well, you know, there, there is a moment in, at the end of the Gospel of John uh, and you're, I'm sure you're familiar with it, where, where Jesus, he uh, meets Peter after his resurrection. And if you remember, uh, prior to being crucified, Peter had denied the Lord three times. Uh, he swore up and down that he would never do that, but um, here he is. I mean, he's outright rejected even knowing who Jesus is. Um, and Jesus, after his resurrection, he comes, he comes to, to Peter and and he asks them multiple times, hey, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter, every time, gets more and more, you can tell, he's just more, maybe not hurt by the question, but it just, it stings him, right? It, it gets right to, the, to his core because he knows what he did days earlier. 
Now, three times he had denied Christ, and here again, three times the Lord is asking him this question, do you, do you love me? And Peter says, oh, you know I do, you know I do. But the Lord's response to Peter, and the, and the way that he restores and, and, and illustrates for him this redemption that is, in fact, his because of the cross, he says, then, then Peter, you should feed my sheep. And I've always been interested in how like, that is some sort of restorative thing for Peter. You know, how do, how do these two things go together? He denied Christ, and now Jesus is just telling him, hey, well, then go feed my sheep. Some people might say, oh, no, that's how Peter's going to pay Jesus back. But that's, that's not the gospel, right? Can we say that? Paying Jesus back for what he's done is not the gospel. That is, that is debt. Um, now, Peter is given this task, and I, I, I'm telling you it's for these same reasons. Because by, by proclaiming the gospel— by being given the task of feeding God's people the, the only nourishment that they need. The Lord is showing to Peter the power of that very gospel. That in so doing, he, he himself can experience the might and the wonder and the grace and the mercy that the Lord has had for him. Even, even after everything that he had just done, the Lord is so kind and saves him at the cross and then beckons him to feed God's people and make that the purpose of his life. How can we then forget this good news? How can we forsake the Lord? Let us delight in our God and watch his church, his people, thrive the only, the only way we can, through the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, what a, what a tremendous privilege it is that you have given us your, your gospel, that you have saved us, you've redeemed us, you have brought us from the pit, you brought us from death to life in Christ, not because of our works, uh, not because of our worth, um, but because of the surpassing greatness of your son, because of your love for us. Lord, you have rescued us from certain destruction and doom. We who are so often uh, forgetful and um, and, and easily distracted by the things of this world. Lord, would you, would you help us to see the gospel more clearly today? Would you cause us to revel in it more and more and to delight in the work that you have done? Um, help us to see the signs of this in one another as we delight in the gospel together, as we seek to make Christ known to one another and to those around us who, who don't know Christ at all. Lord, would you fill us with a zeal for this good news? Would you make us more like your son? And would you give us the, the boldness of, of Peter, who though he denied you, was welcomed into restoration and reconciliation, forgiveness, and beckoned to feed your sheep with this gospel? Lord, we, we pray that you would stir our hearts with affection for Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.